0: you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2 this morning. In recent years, what was only once heard in mainline liberal churches is now floating around the hearts and minds of those who would preach in and, and attend evangelical churches. It's a notion that I believe has largely been driven by the winds of culture. Uh, in fact, most of the sins among God's people are driven by uh, the winds of culture as we feel the pressure to conform and to go along with those around us. And this idea, this notion is this, that somehow God's judgment is wrong or unjust. People are ashamed to speak of a judgment because it makes them sound judgmental. And to rationalize this to themselves, they work backwards from their experience and their mindset and their their desire to what the text of Scripture says. So they, they start with this idea, we don't like the way judgment sounds, how can we get rid of it? Then they go back to the text of the Scriptures and try to interpret them in light of their desires. What they try to say uh, is that we see over and over again that God is gracious and loving. Therefore, we do not need a judgment. We can emphasize the God of grace and love, which, of course, God is gracious and God is loving. But the result is a theology that says God's love will actually win in the end. It will actually triumph over His sense of holiness and justice, and therefore, a judgment is not needed. And that is held to the degree that even those who in this life have not given God a second thought, let alone put their faith in Christ, they will also be be going to heaven on the last day. There's no thought of anyone actually going to hell. And so, a, a very famous theologian, infamous, Uh, in some ways, named Clark Pinnock, helped make this popular in academic circles among those that would teach in seminaries. And another man, a pastor named Rob Bell, helped bring this to the masses through his book, Love Wins, and his numerous appearances on radio and television shows like that of Oprah Winfrey. Those influences have, in recent years, hit the pulpits and the pews, and thoughts about God and His judgment are changing. Understand, this is no mere doctrinal issue. It's not just something that, uh, you know, someone's going to write about in books or talk about uh, in classrooms. You know, when I was in high school, it was very popular for people to identify uh, the sport in which they played with a a shirt that said something like, baseball is life or football is life or soccer even, surprisingly to some of you, is life. But in a very real sense, the Bible is clear that doctrine is life doctrine is life. What you believe will determine what you cherish and value and how you live. What we believe is never abstracted from our life, no matter how much we might like to think that it is. This is especially true when it comes to what you believe about God. What you believe about God will profoundly affect how you live your life and how you interact with others. So now, sadly, we find people who say with their lips that they believe in Christ, they trust His gospel, but their lives are radically out of step with what they say they believe. What has happened? The thought of judgment is gone. And once we've lost God's judgment, then you lose all consequences for our actions. And once you lose consequences for our actions, all bets are off. Anyone can do anything they want. Everyone can do what is right in their own eyes. Life is now all about me. What do I like? What do I want to do? What what do I think is important and essential? So what's the truth of the matter here? Will there be a judgment of sinners on the last day? Will it be just, will there actually be people condemned and sent to hell? And is it even right for God to punish people in that way? Is his judgment justified? These are the kinds of questions and concerns that we find showing up in Romans chapter 2. And we come to Romans chapter 2 this morning because we've been working, or at least we started last week working our way through the book of Romans one chapter at a time. And so now we come to chapter 2, and here's what Paul says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast of the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of God this morning. As we're working our way through Romans, it's important to remind ourselves that when Paul wrote these letters, he did not include the chapter and, number, uh, chapter and verse numbers in there. Those came much, much later and were put in to help scholars and pastors and everyday Christians more easily navigate their way around the Bible. But if we aren't careful, we will forget that Romans is one long, well-reasoned argument. So remember how Paul ended what we call chapter one. There he made the argument that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, he now says at the beginning of verse two, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one, <clears throat> excuse me, on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so, whereas Paul was focused on the Gentile peoples, people like you and me who are not Jewish and their propensity for sin in chapter one, now he makes the turn towards his own people. His eye is on the Jewish people, the Jews who would have looked down on the Gentiles and their sins, especially of dishonoring God and failing to give him glory. Yet Paul says that they themselves also suffer under God's judgment. Thus, Paul is working towards this ultimate point that we'll see next week in chapter 3, namely that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And specifically in this chapter, Paul is concerned to show that God is not unjust in his judgment. That is to say, the judgment that is coming on all people, Jews and Gentiles, is completely just. Specifically, we see that God's judgment is impartial. We see that in the first 16 verses. God's judgment is impartial. God is not partial in His judgment, just the opposite. And what Paul shows is that all the advantages of the Jews will not save them from God's judgment. How do we know that? Well, Paul says it in verse 11, God shows no partiality. But He also gives us three lines of evidence for this truth in verses 1 through 16. So God's judgment is impartial. How do we know? First, we know because we are judged for our unrepentance we are judged for our unrepentance. Paul imagining some Jews would have heard what he said. He's he's using a very kind of classical way of arguing uh, here, uh, assuming an audience that he's talking to in order to address the audience that he actually is talking to. So he's thinking of Jewish unbelievers, though he's addressing Jewish believers, he's wanting to help them understand better what their life was like before they came to Christ so that there will be an impact in how they treat the Gentiles now that they are all together in Christ. And he says, as, as they heard me condemning the Gentiles for their sins, likely there would have been these kind of knowing glances passed between them. Yeah, those Gentiles. Yep, that's, he's exactly right condemnation from God. That's what they deserve for all of their idolatry. But then he turns to the Jews and says, if you're sp- feeling smug about that, just hold up a sec because you're no better off than they are. You're no better than them. Verse one, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges from passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge practice the very same things. You presume to sit in judgment on them, but you do the exact same sorts of sins. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We understand that those who sin in these things, they deserve judgment. He says, so do you suppose, oh man, when you practice the same things, that you will somehow escape judgment? Do you think the Gentiles deserve judgment for their sin and you committed the same sins? Do you think you're going to escape judgment? That's what Paul's saying here. That's a huge presumption on God, he says. You've presumed on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. How? Because you have failed to see God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's what Paul says. Like a spoiled child who keeps getting what he wants, who keeps getting grace after disobedience, after disobedience, after disobedience, you begin to forget that your parents' forgiveness and patience is is meant to help you see your sin and be grateful for their forgiveness. But on that kind of presumption, there is a lack of repentance. when, 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 When you're just told, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, and no punishment comes, eventually you become hardened to your sin, and you can't see it, and therefore you don't turn. But what does Paul say? Paul says that lack of repentance will only go on for so long. One pastor likened it to a greedy man who hoarded his wealth, who never shared, who never gave anything. He just kept storing up money and money and money all into the attic of his house. And one night while he slept, the weak floorboards above him broke under the strain and the weight of his riches and came crashing down upon him, killing him. Paul says, that's what it's going to be like for you, brothers. That's exactly what it's going to be like for you. Every time you fail to repent, you are just heaping up wrath for the day to come. That's what he says in verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, so rather than looking around and saying, though I deserve it for my sins, I'm not dead yet. I deserve to be dead, but I'm not dead yet. And therefore, knowing God has been patient with me and repenting of my sins. said, so, nope, you just keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And for that unrepentance, Paul says we deserve God's judgment. God is not out to get anyone. He is completely fair, fully impartial to judge us, especially after being so kind and so patient in the face of our sin. God also shows his impartiality and that he judges people according to their works. We are judged according to works. Listen to verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, if you are a Christian, does that cause you to take a, make a double take? Say, what did he just say? If not, you're not listening to the text. It sounds very much like he says, do good and you get eternal life. Do bad and you go to hell. Is that the gospel we preach? We just had a, a ton of neighbors over last night. And the conversa- conversation worked around so that way uh, in the midst of these people that frankly I, I don't know if they're Christians or not, uh, we were talking about baptism and how we talk to the person being baptized first. And I said, I, especially with kids, when it's so hard to discern because they're not old enough to really bear fruit of repentance, I said, I'd go after them hard. I even try and trick them into saying... I will be saved if I'm good, and I will go to hell if I'm bad. Because then I know they don't understand the gospel. The gospel is, I'm bad, I deserve hell, but God forgives me in Christ. And so this sounds very contradictory to that, doesn't it? What is Paul talking about? Well, don't get tripped up here. He's not denying He's not denying the truth that he's going to hammer again and again and again throughout this letter to all the others that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. See, that sounds familiar. That's because Paul says it a lot. Okay, He says it a lot in the Bible, and it's true. And next week in chapter 3, he will say outright, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we know if Paul, unless he's just a crazy man... And totally inconsistent, we know we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, interpreters basically go four different directions with these verses. And I do not have time uh, nor the desire to walk through all four of those. If you're really interested, I will send you something on email or photocopy. But here's what I think Paul is talking about. I think he is trying to show that works are always the fruit of true faith. If you have really trusted in Christ, if you're really trusting God to save you, then, then the, there is the fruit of righteousness that will be borne out in good works from your life. Now, one commentator takes that view to task. You can't say that. He says, it's like the dog's missing bark in the, silver, in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Silver Blaze. And there, Sherlock Holmes knows because the dog's bark was absent. The dog didn't bark. It wasn't a stranger that came in to hurt the horse. It was someone he knew. Case solved. And they say, there's no faith here. Paul's not barking the word faith. You don't find it anywhere in the text. Therefore, that cannot be what he has in mind. And I want to say, I'm not convinced by that. I'm not convinced for that line of reasoning for a couple of reasons. Number one, the alternative is Paul is offering a hypothetical salvation. If it's possible, it's, if it were possible that one could actually be good in everything, be perfect, then he would earn salvation. Well, that stands so far contrary to everything we see in the Bible, especially Paul. I don't buy it. It doesn't even sound hypothetical in this this passage. So based on Paul's writings and the larger witness of Scripture, I don't find that idea to be very compelling. Instead, once again, I think Paul assumes that work flows from faith. And I want to give you three reasons why I think that's true. Number one, Paul has already introduced the essential nature of faith in chapter one. Do you remember what he said back then? He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Does good? No, who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the important word there? Come on, we can do better than that. What is the important word there? Faith. Hey, there you go. No lesson. Three times and then you have a belief which is the same thing. Number two, just before this, Paul brought up repentance. You don't repent, therefore judgment is just. What what always goes with repentance in the Bible? Faith. Finally, Paul also wrote a little letter called Galatians. You may have heard of it. In Galatians 6, we find a passage that sounds almost exactly like this. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And there he says, those who receive eternal life are those who do not give up doing good works. And Galatians is all about, we're saved by grace through faith not by works. So what is he saying? I think that Paul is saying, good works flow from our faith. They give evidence of our salvation. No evidence, means probably no faith, no salvation. The point here is to show that God is not partial in judging people. Why? Because each person makes decisions that puts them on one of two paths. They are either living a life that is self-seeking, self-serving, which leaves them to be, uh, to be sinful, and therefore be justly condemned under the, the wrath of God's hand, or they live a life of faith a life seeking glory and honor and immortality not from their own doing but from God as a gift which results in a life of good works and therefore eternal life from God. Why is that important? It's important because some of you here may be on that path that leads to judgment. You're seeking things like glory and honor and immortality in this life by your own hard work and striving. It's not going to lead where you think it's going to lead. It's going to lead to God's judgment and hell. Some of you are in the church and you believe that you have salvation from God. The question we must ask ourselves is, where is the fruit? Are we bearing, as John the Baptist would say, fruit in keeping with repentance? Are we giving evidence of our faith by a life of good works? Or are we just on coast? As is, is, is I prayed earlier, is our life consumed with a passive desire to not do anything bad rather than an active pursuit of righteousness? And good works. From Romans 2, we see that God's judgment is impartial because we are judged for unrepentance, for our works, and finally by the law. We are judged by the law. For many reasons, one of my favorite book series is The Chronicles of Narnia. I read the, the first book uh, along with uh, many other students in my fifth grade public school class, and it was interesting. I'd grown up in church, I'm reading that, and I thought, you know, he, he ripped off Christianity for this story to work. And I just thought, you know, there's be like copyright infringement or something. That's my fifth grade mind. Well, then the next year I start going to a Christian school in sixth grade. And guess what I find out? It wasn't a ripoff. It's intentional. See, this Lewis is a Christian. He's trying to teach kids something. And I went, ding, light bulb. And suddenly I thought, oh, this is cool. So I read his books books, and and, and there's a lot of actually good lessons in there. But then he completely bombs out in the last book. The last book is supposed to be uh, the, the kind of eschatology of Narnia. How do all things end? What is the final judgment going to look like? And there we find, without going into all the details, we find a guy there who is worshiping a false god in the context of that narrative. But he ends up in heaven. And the other people who worship the truth God look around and say, how did this guy get in? He worshiped the false god. And, and the true God says he was such a good person. He did such good works that it was impossible he was really worshiping the false God. Even though he didn't know his name, even though he didn't know it, he was worshiping the one true God, and therefore he is saved. In other words, what is Lewis saying? Lewis saying it is possible for someone in pagan lands who's never heard the gospel of Christ to still be saved without ever trusting in Christ and, in fact, worshiping their family idols. Now, some today think that that is exactly what's going to happen on the last day. That, yeah, we're saved through Christ's death, but faith in Christ doesn't matter. And they'll look to these verses here, 12 through 16, and say, this is what these verses teach. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that true? Is that what Paul's saying here? The Gentiles have a law unto themselves, and it's okay if they never hear, they're still going to be saved. If that's true, then why in the world are we spending so much money on missions? Makes no sense. If people can be saved apart from faith in Christ, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we talk about evangelism? What's the point? So so is that really what Paul is saying in these verses? Notice verse 12 illustrates what he said in verse 11. God shows no partiality. How? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Then in verse 13, Paul gives the reason for saying this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But wait a minute, the Gentiles don't have the law. That's exactly right. And what does Paul say? When the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, the main point here that Paul is writing about is to take away the notion, the idea that, that Jews had, that they were somehow exempt from judgment. They would never go through the judgment because they're God's chosen people. We have the law. God's not going to condemn us. We're not going to hell, but we have the law. Look, it's right here. It's in fancy scrolls. we got it. We got it in the temple. We've got it in the synagogues. There, there's no way. In other words, their election by God was seen as a means for for bragging and pride and an excuse for sin rather than a humble pursuit of righteousness. And Paul wants to show listen, you Jews have the law, but you're also lawbreakers. You have the law, but you also break the law. And for that, you are going to face God's judgment. And he brings in the evidence of the Gentile conscience as the star witness. Look, he says, even the Gentiles, people without the law, unwittingly do things in line with the law. If they're going to be condemned, how much more will you Jews be condemned? For if they, if you, if you have the law clearly laid out in tablets of stone, preached and applied by the priests, and yet refuse to obey it, how much more, how much more are you deserving of God's wrath? Then he says in verse 13, that they are hearers of the law, but not doers of the law. So the point that Paul's writing about isn't about Gentile salvation apart from the law. It's about the condemnation of the Jews who have the law and don't do it. Nevertheless, is Paul saying that those who haven't heard won't be judged? That's what some argue. It's not fair. It's not fair. How can they be judged for something they don't know? Well, do we not have, even in our law books, ignorance of the law is no excuse? If I go to Ohio and don't know the speed limit and break the law, is, that gonna, is a cop going to care? Nope. Here's your ticket, sir. Have a nice day. Well, it was until you stopped me. Is God's judgment unfair? No. Paul says no. Every human being, whether Jew who has it on a tablet of stone or a Gentile who has it written in our heart, knows the difference between right and wrong. That's Paul's argument. Though that image of God that we were made in is smeared by sin, like teachers leaning up against a chalkboard and then walking away, and you're like, what was that math problem? It's not clear, it's not distinct like it should be. It's still there. We have a conscience, and it will either excuse our behavior or it will accuse our behavior because we have an instinctive understanding of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So yes, sometimes even those who have never been a part of the Christian church can still feel guilty for something they've done. Or they can still find it themselves to do something selfless and good. But that's never enough to save anyone. Never. In fact, just the opposite. It shows that we are justly judged for our sin. We know better and we sin in any way. Once again, God is is, is impartial even on the day when he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now Paul is going to ratchet up the argument. He says, brothers, fellow Jews, according to the flesh, in case you miss it, I am talking to you. You need to understand that you cannot escape the implications of what I've said. And neither can we, frankly. And this is the second big idea that we see in this passage, verses 17 through 29, God's judgment against hypocrisy. God's judgment against hypocrisy. Now, according to... A story in Reader's Digest several years ago, there was a pastor that had been preaching on the importance of daily Bible reading. I don't think anybody here has ever heard anything about that. Anyway, this pastor and his wife were invited to go over to one of the members' houses for dinner at this time. And while they were there, they were talking, they were relaxing, and the pastor's wife happened to glance over into the kitchen and see the family calendar. And on that date, the date when they were there uh, enjoying dinner at this family, here was the note written on the calendar. Pastor and Mrs. for dinner, dash, Dust all Bibles. Now, it seems like such an innocent, even innocuous thing, but it actually reveals the heart of a hypocrite. I mean, that's exactly what it reveals. It reveals the heart of someone who is more concerned for appearance than substance. Paul says, Jews, my fellow Jews, that's our problem. That's our problem. And that's Paul's concern in these final chapters. He will challenge those who claim to be true Jews but don't actually seek to live out the instructions of God's law. You boast in the law, but you won't do the law. That's what Paul says. And in fact, he shows that Jewish hypocrisy dishonors God. How? First, he is dishonored by their lawless faith. He is dishonored by their lawless faith. Do you remember the one sin in Israel that the prophets just railed them on over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament? It was the sin of idolatry. They had been chosen to be Yahweh's special people. And they would worship Yahweh, but then they would also go worship Baal and Moloch and Astra and all these other false gods from the pagan peoples around them. And and the prophets just hammered them on this and said, you know those gods aren't real. They, They don't exist. They are false pagan gods. Why would you worship them? And they kept doing it, and so God kicked them out of the land. For hundreds of years I've been patient and I've told you what's coming and now judgment falls and the, the, the gates of protection are lifted. The armies come in. They ransack the people of Israel and drag almost all of them off into exile, never to be seen of again. Only two tribes actually come back from exile. But what happens when they come back? No more idolatry. Never again. Never in the rest of the Bible do you see any mention of idolatry. They, they never again speak the, the name of false gods on their lips or in their worship. But that doesn't mean that Israel is sinless. In fact, Jesus is the one who points out that a new sin has come to characterize his people. Their devotion to the Lord has become twisted into a thing of pride. And in their pride, they have prized God's law, God's God's election and preservation of them more than actually doing the law. So Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 12 beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Look who we are! We, We are the Jewish people, we have God's law! but you don't do the law. That's what Jesus says. You know the law. You have it memorized. You can recite it. You can debate it. You get into into word studies about certain Hebrew forms, but you don't actually ever try to obey the law. That's a problem. It's hypocrisy. It begins when they believe they're okay. Verses 17 and 18. Because they rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because they are instructed from the law. In other words, they're confident in their salvation because they are Jews. But what's the problem? They don't actually do his will. They know it, but they don't do it. Verse 21. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Or in today's idiom, do you not practice what you preach? He says, While you are preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must commit adultery, must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? What is the consequence of their lawlessness? Their love for the law, but their failure to do it? Verse 25, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Think about that. When Paul was speaking to the Gentiles failing to honor God, the Jews would have thought, yep, don't honor God. All kinds of idolatry. But now... Paul strikes them in the core. He says, you know better than them. You don't show them a picture of who God is, a God worthy of their worship. Instead, you dishonor God. Though called to be a light to the Gentiles, you cause his name to be blasphemed among the peoples. We, we are not the Jewish people. The nation of modern Israel is not the Jewish people as We have in the scriptures. So there's a real sense in which Paul's words have no direct, immediate application today, but boy, the principles still stand, isn't there? And we have to ask ourselves, oh church, by our living, are we hypocrites? Does the world looking outside at our lives look in and say, to heck with God, if that's who his people are like? Is His name actually blasphemed and derided because of our hypocrisy to to say, oh, we love this book, we've got to have those Ten Commandments up in the courts, but we never actually live in light of those things? God was dishonored by the faithless faith of His people, but notice He was also dishonored by their heartless faith. By their heartless faith. One of the signs of the covenant between Israel and God was circumcision, but much like any tradition... It came to be used to excuse their sin. Some Jews would have thought to themselves, I'm circumcised, I'm part of the covenant, God isn't going to judge me. And what does Paul say? Knowing God and being known by Him is not about who you are or what you do, it's about what you believe. Are you trusting in Him? Therefore, the central question isn't whether or not you're circumcised, but whether or not you have true faith in God. Verse 25, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The point is, even if you're circumcised, if you don't keep the law, you're not a true Jew. You're not a true believer. And therefore, you might as well not even be circumcised. It's not going to save you. Some of you say, well, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. So what? Baptism is great if you are a Christian. It's what Christ commands But have you been circumcised in the heart? Has the Spirit of God produced in you the new birth? Just having a tradition of Christianity isn't important. The question is, do I have new life in Christ because I've repented of sins and put my faith in Him? That's the real question. Paul goes on further in verses 27 through 29 and drives him to the point and says, being blessed by God doesn't depend on ritual or ethnicity. Even non-Jews can be saved. Why? Because a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter not of the flesh, but of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. The letter of the law, he means. That person's praise doesn't come from man. It comes from God. In other words, why are you doing the things that you do? Do you want to look good in front of other people or are you seeking to please almighty God? It's very easy, isn't it, as a church to look out at people outside the church and to feel contempt for them? Look at those sinners. I can't believe they act like that. Isn't it ridiculous? Our culture is just going to the pits. This is garbage. I can't believe people like that. we feel better for them or, or, or better than them rather because we have the truth? We have scripture and we've believed in it? Does that make us feel like we're on a different level of them? Sometimes it happens even sitting here in church, we look across the aisle to other people. We think things like, I can't, I can't believe they would do something like that. What are they thinking? Or, I can't believe they would look down on me for what I did. I, I'm free in Christ. All the while, we're missing this reality check. We ourselves are sinful. We are sinful sinful and sometimes we're committing the exact same sins that we're looking at in other people they're just different expressions of those sins we rail on someone who's made sexual identity the most important thing in their life twisting and distorting god's good design as we saw last week but at the same time we don't ever plan our days our week our months our lives or our priorities according to what god says is important in his word what's the difference nothing it's the same sin it's about me And what I want, not about God and what He wants. Do you see how hypocritic that is? God despises that. And we look like a joke to one another and to the world. Hypocrisy is a sin that is so ugly in others, but so very difficult to see in the mirror. What is our only hope in this? Repentance and faith in Christ a constant willingness to get on our knees before Him and His penetrating Word to have even the secret thoughts and intentions of our heart laid bare that we might turn away from our sin by God's grace. You know, just in the past few weeks, there's been a renewed call for the debate on the issue of capital punishment. Uh, there's been some, some problems and some, some issues and people have said, well, you know, we just ought to get, a, get, a, get, a, get, a, get rid of that, not do that anymore. And even in some Christian circles, th- there are people saying, we ought to get rid of capital punishment. And regardless of of what you think about that at this point, because that's not the point, it's interesting to hear Christians arguing against it by trying to pit justice against grace as if they are somehow enemies. They'll say something like this, if we really understood God's grace and mercy, we would be opposed to the death penalty. But here's the problem. The underlying assumption is that grace is the opposite of justice. That's not true. Injustice is the opposite of justice. And what we find in the Bible is that grace and justice go hand in hand very well because of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. This is our deepest hope and joy as a Christian. That Christ was condemned not for His sin but for mine. He willingly endured my judgment, the judgment I deserve on His cross. God was just and He punished my sin. My sin has not gone unpunished. It just fell on Christ instead of me. And on the basis of that offering, when I put my faith in Him to be my Savior, then God graciously forgives my sin and my debt because He was paid for by Christ. That is what gives us life and salvation and drives us, like Paul, to preach Christ. God's judgment should not make us meek and mild and timid and close our mouths. It should open our mouths in boldness. Because there's an urgency to our message. Yes, God is going to judge people and it's going to be fair. It's going to be just. It's going to be impartial. It is deserved. But he has sent Christ that we might escape that judgment. God's justice is fulfilled. His graciousness is offered all in Christ. He is our only hope to be right with God. Therefore, this morning, we ought to examine our hearts for sin and hypocrisy, not presuming on God's patience and mercy, but repenting and believing the gospel. And as those who have believed, boldly be telling others to do the same. Father, that's our desire, but God, even this morning, only you will allow us to see our sin. We know that sin is deceitful, that, Father, our hearts are wicked and deceitful, and we so easily hear. Words that ought to prick our conscience and make us to feel guilty before you that we might repent and find forgiveness. But Father, instead we harden our hearts and we rationalize and justify our sin to the point that we can't even see that it's wrong anymore. Father, if that goes on too long, we know that we're in danger not of losing our salvation but of revealing we've never had it in the first place. So God, give us soft hearts. Give us hearts that burn and they hear Your Word, both with sorrow for sin, but also with joy and hope in Christ. Father, in all things, help us to put our faith in Him, to understand what You have done for us in Him, and therefore to have different lives because of Him. God, be merciful to us this morning. Amen.